Let's talk about your second patient, a 54-year-old lady. She's a 54-year-old who presented in November with a left breast mass. Mammogram showed an irregular mass that was highly suggestive. The needle biopsy showed an invasive ductal carcinoma, intermediate grade, focal LVI, ER essentially negative, less than 2 out of 8, PR 2 to 3 out of 8, and HER2 3 plus positive. She had a left axillary lymph node biopsy that was positive for metastatic adenocarcinoma consistent with breast. When I met her, she had about a 4.5 by 3.5 centimeter left anterior axillary mass. The left nipple was retracted. There was about a 6.7 by 5.7 centimeter upper inner quadrant mass. It was mobile with respect to the chest wall. There was no overt overlying puckering or erythema. With her staging studies, again, we saw a 1.3 centimeter lesion in the posterior right lobe of the liver, multiple left axillary lymph nodes, the largest of which measured 3.5 centimeters, and an MRI was confirmatory of the liver lesion, which was solitary. She presented right before the holiday, and I met her like the beginning of December, and two weeks later, as we got all these tests done, she came in and was complaining that her left breast hurt her more, that she felt like this lesion was growing in the breast, and was very anxious to get started on treatment. I knew I needed to plan the liver biopsy, but I wasn't going to be able to get that for about another 10 days. So in speaking with her, what I decided was, you know, I knew she was going to need dual anti-HER therapy, and if she had metastatic disease, then I would probably go with dosage taxol, pertuzumab, and trastuzumab. And if the liver biopsy turned out to be negative, then she would get carboplatin probably in that regimen. And so my thought was that given her symptoms that, and I didn't want to delay treatment, we started her with docetaxel, pertuzumab, and trastuzumab. And that was on 1223. And then on 1231, she did have the liver biopsy that turned out to be positive. She came back for her first post-treatment visit, and her left breast mass and the left axillary mass had entirely resolved clinically. So walk me through your thinking in terms of the carboplatin. I'm not quite clear about that. Well, I think if she had neoadjuvant, if I was going to be treating her as a neoadjuvant patient without metastatic disease, then I probably would have used a TCH-like regimen plus the pertuzumab. But at the time when I didn't know whether there was metastatic disease there or not, and this woman was a little bit older, has some other comorbidities, I didn't want to add the carboplatin without a little bit more knowledge of what I was treating. And I knew that if she had metastatic disease, the staple would be pertuzumab, docetaxel, and trastuzumab. So that's why I opted to start with that, knowing that I could always add another drug in later if it turned out that the liver biopsy was negative. So, Adam, do you sort of go along with that algorithm in terms of adding the carboplatin if you think it's just neoadjuvant? Yeah, well, again, if you look at the trifenema trial, you know, the one that resulted in FDA approval, the patients did get TCHP. That was the standard. If you look at the Neosphere data, they got THP and then got AC after. So if you're going to give THP alone for four cycles, you probably have to give AC as well. Did the FDA indications say anything about that? I'm not sure, but they did quote the trifenema trial. We were trying to look that through. You know, I don't know. You know, when this first came out, because we really had a big debate in our own practice whether the carbo was really even necessary. Because if you really look at metastatic disease, and again, it's not a perfect analogy, TH is the same as TCH, really. And I think that, you know, who knows if TCHP is the same as THP. But as I was telling Pat before, when we were talking about this, when this patient came in, if I have a very low threshold to drop the carbo, if I have to in somebody, if they're having a lot of toxicity from it in TCHP. So I don't have a problem with this. I mean, I think that I generally in the neoadjuvant setting will start people on TCHP, but have a very low threshold to drop the carbo. 
So would you support, or maybe Pat, are you thinking about a similar kind of route to take with this patient who's got HER2 positive disease as your first patient if she has a PATH-CR or complete clinical response? I think I would probably at least entertain the option. In other words, we have an MRI now planned. She's had three cycles of treatment, and I'm going to plan an MRI to look at her liver. And if there is a response in the liver as well, which I would anticipate given how stunning the breast response was, then I think I would have her see the surgeon and try to determine whether she is a candidate or not. A couple more of these patients, you can start a series and report it. (laughs) But really, it is amazing that you come up with these two cases to start out with. It also provides us with an opportunity to talk a little bit about neoadjuvant therapy, HER2-positive disease. Adam, you referred to the FDA indication. and Maybe you can sort of walk through that a little bit. There are a number of things about it that are kind of interesting, particularly the fact that as per the FDA, you can really only give the pertuzumab neoadjuvantly. You can't follow it up. In the post Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because that's basically the way the trials were done. So all these trials were done as neoadjuvant studies testing the worth of these agents in the neoadjuvant setting. So, you know, you have Neosphere, you have Trifonema, you know, all of which gave various either ACTH and ACTHP, TCH, TCHP, or HP, THP, TH, TP, in Neosphere, but then everybody got AC after, and then got trastuzumab after. And so all of them, after they went through, after post-op, post-surgery, after post-surgery, in Neosphere, they got AC, then followed by trastuzumab for a year. In Trifenema, they got trastuzumab only for a year. And so the FDA was hewing, has been hewing very closely to those trial designs, which means you can only really give the pertuzumab then. And it's an interesting question. Do you really need the pertuzumab? Do you need to give HP postoperatively, you know, which is, we don't know. I don't think we have an answer to that. And I think that we all are just sticking by the FDA indication for the time being until we sort through it. So I'm curious, Pat, what your experience has been with pertuzumab in this patient as well as other patients. Any toxicity that you think you've seen related to that? I've heard people talk about dermatologic toxicity. It's kind of hard to really get a grasp on what it might be. So have you, is there anything that you've seen? Does this lady have any problem with her therapy? You know, this woman's major issues have been that she's been very tired, and she had a fair amount of diarrhea, probably more from the docetaxel. But she's also had some difficulties with her work situation, and that's, I think, contributed to the symptoms that she's expressing. But I don't know that I could say is there any distinctive symptoms related to the pertuzumab. I only have one other patient that I've used pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting. And again, I don't know that there's toxicity specifically related to that. I think it was the combination of treatments. I treated her with the docetaxel carbo, pertuzumab, trastuzumab. So I think it was the combination that was causing more of the issues than just the pertuzumab. Adam, anything that's fleshed out now that we're getting a little bit down the line here with pertuzumab in terms of toxicity, anything that you've observed? Have you seen any dermatologic problems? Occasional rash, a little bit more diarrhea, but that's about it. There's really nothing more. I really think, especially, you know, I've had a few people on this now. For a long time, there's a trial that we participate in called Pertain, where patients get anastrozole with trastuzumab plus minus pertuzumab. We have a number of patients on that. And you're on long-term HP, I mean, for years. And, you know, I've really seen very little additional toxicity. You know, actually, that was the next thing I was going to ask you about was the Pertain trial, because I know you've been involved with that, and it's so interesting. I'm curious, in terms of that strategy, 
How do you approach outside a trial setting these patients with ER positive HER2 positive metastatic disease, particularly the ones who are not, you know, super sick, you know, really bulky symptomatic disease? If they're triple positive, say ER positive or ER positive HER2 positive, I generally give them trastuzumab and an antihormonal therapy up front. I think unless they really have bulk visceral disease, you know, I think I would start there. I think we're coming to the era, however, with Marianne looming. And Marianne, again, just to reiterate, is docetaxel, trastuzumab, TDM1, or TDM1 pertuzumab. I think if that trial turns out to be very positive for the TDM1 with very little toxicity, I suspect we're going to use TDM1 in a lot of these people, even if they're ER positive. We'll maybe use you know, TDM1 by itself or TDM1 with an antihormonal therapy. But for now, until that trial becomes current, you know, or at least it announces, which we think it will within the next six months or so, I tend to use anti-HER2 therapy, probably usually trastuzumab with an antihormonal agent. And of course, you know, that study is also looking at another really interesting thought, which is TDM1 and pertuzumab. Correct. That's going to be very expensive. <laughs> but clearly, I mean, that could potentially be positive. Unfortunately, in Marianne, there's no THP arm, but that was because the trial was designed before Cleopatra announced. And, you know, it's just the way trials have to be designed. But I think it's going to be very interesting. It's probably going to set the standard of care. It's going to either be TDM1 with or without pertuzumab, I suspect. If I was a betting man, that's kind of how I think the trial will end up. I'm curious, Pat, what your experience has been with TDM1 and what you think it'd be like to start using it in first line. I've been very excited by TDM1. Again, I have two patients who are on it now. One woman who has had extensive chest wall disease. Basically, she presented a few years ago with metastatic breast cancer, and her right breast was replaced by a tumor mass, and her left breast was almost auto-amputated. It was just a scarce reaction over a whole chest wall. And on the TDM1, her systemic disease has been quiescent, and her chest wall is remarkably better. I've just, I mean, she's got normal skin there again. It's been absolutely dramatic, and her toxicity's been low. Her only potential problem is she's got brain metastases, which may or may not be benefiting. The other patient I have on TDM1 has had issues, interestingly, with an acute reaction when she gets the medication. She comes in with a fever two or three days later, and that fever can be 100, 101. She's very tired, and then that's over, and that's it. So her main complaint on the TDM1 has been fatigue and this fever. Her first course was complicated by a little thrombocytopenia, but I lowered the dose a little bit, and we haven't seen it since, and she's been fine. Pat, can I ask Pat a question? Would you yeah. mind terribly, Neil? Sure, no. So how do the brain mets do? Did we... Well, the brain mets, you know? have, yeah, the brain mets, she had them even before we started the TDM1, and they are slowly progressing. Yeah, so, and so even on TDM1. Even yeah. on the TDM1. Okay. So that may, that's going to be my limiting factor. Yep, okay. Have you seen responses in brain mets to TDM1, Adam? Well, we're talking about that. The TBCRC, which is one of the trials groups that is around, is thinking about a trial of TDM1 for brain metastases. And it's based on the fact that there may have been some responses. In fact, they're analyzing the data from the patients who did develop brain mets on the Amelia study, which was TDM1 versus capecitabine lapatinib. The question being, is there really a response? And in the, I think they're also tending, the people are looking at the TERESA trial, which recently announced, was TDM1 in heavily pretreated metastatic breast cancer. You know, and I think there is some theory that there may be transcytosis of the TDM1 across a blood-brain barrier. And so the issue is that, it, at least as an interesting theoretical 
possibility that TDM1 could help. Anything that's come out in terms of toxicity with TDM1, either from data or your own clinical experience, Adam? Pat mentioned the thrombocytopenia. I've heard a couple cases of bleeding. What do we know about that and some of the other issues? Yeah, I mean, the FDA actually put out a warning, made people put out a warning, and a lot of the clinical trials that we do with TDM1 in it, we had to reconsent the patients because there have been some cases of fatal hemorrhage from thrombocytopenia. But in my particular practice, it has not been that bad. It's very controllable. The patients come in every three weeks, and if the thrombocytopenia is low, you dose reduce. I have seen one thing of interest is that there has been more fatigue than I thought there would be. I have had a number of patients who really had severe fatigue with the first dose or two, and then that actually kind of they got tachyphylaxis to it and did better. That's interesting. What about liver function abnormalities? They've been reported. Have you seen them? They have been reported, but in my experience, I've not really seen any of that. And I've not either with my few cases. So one more question before we go on, as long as we're talking about the issue of neoadjuvant therapy of HER2-positive disease, I just want to sort of dip down and get Adam's thought in terms of adjuvant therapy, because we did see, again, at San Antonio, a trial that we've been looking for for a while. It's only a single-arm study out of Dana-Farber, but looking at paclitaxel trastuzumab as adjuvant therapy in node-negative patients. Can you capsulize what they presented and what you think it means, Adam? It's a great trial. They took women who had, I think, T2 or below disease, so stage 2, I think they had to be N0. Or it was under three centimeters, N0. Under three centimeters, N0. And they were given in a phase two study, they had to be HER2 positive, obviously. They were given as adjuvant therapy, weekly paclitaxel for 12, with trastuzumab for 12, followed by trastuzumab Q3 for to complete a year. The toxicity, as we would expect, is minimal. And I think the three-year disease-free survival is like 97% or yes. something like that, yes. some high number. And I think that this just lets us know that if we have to give, and that's what we can get on a whole other story, if you'd like, about whether these people should even be getting chemotherapy to begin with in trastuzumab. But if you have to give it, I think this could be potentially an excellent regimen. It's not a randomized trial, and I think their follow-up trial is to be actually using TDM1 as adjuvant therapy. But I think this really has opened a lot of eyes in that Clearly, not everybody needs TCH, you know, up front. Yeah, and I guess it is, though, worth noting that, I mean, there are a fair number of patients with T1A tumors in there that, like you would say, you know, maybe they don't even need to be treated. What's your experience, Pat, with this regimen? Have you used it? We actually participated in the Dana-Farber trial, so I had a number of patients on the trial, and they've all continued to do well. And I have used it in some of the patients, especially with the T1 to, you know, kind of the T1C lesions. You know, I usually will not treat a HER2-positive cancer under 5 millimeters, and between 5 and 10, I have to think about it. But I found it to be very tolerable, and I just think the sense I've gotten from the meetings and from the literature is that, you know, the trastuzumab is what we really need, and how much chemo adds to it, we don't know. We've always given chemo in conjunction for the synergy, and so maybe the chemotherapy is a little less important than the trastuzumab, but we don't know that yet. So to, not, to be able to kind of lessen the toxicity by not adding the carbo platin, I think, is a good thing for patients. So final question about this lady, 54 years old, who's now found that she's got metastatic disease. What's her life situation and how's she doing sort of inside? 
She's had somewhat of a tough time. She has a very supportive son who came with her to the original consultation, but her work situation has caused her quite a bit of anxiety and stress, and so she just has been able to get disability at work, and so hopefully that will make it easier for her to tolerate getting through the rest of the treatment. But she still has some issues with anxiety and with sleep issues. So we're kind of at the point now where we're probably halfway through what I would have considered to be my you know, initial regimen, and we'll see what's happening in the liver and then try to slowly make choices as to what's most appropriate from here. Again, Adam, any observations sort of looking over Pat's shoulder about her as a person? No, I mean, you know, she seemed kind of worn out. I, mean, I think that she's tired. You know, I think a lot of stress, a lot of the questions really revolved around her anti-anxiety medication. And that was her big issue, but she looked pretty good. 